Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in community organizing. We work with not-for-profit and community-based organizations, trade unions, businesses, and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building, and help you execute a campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories to inspire others, take action, and organize communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you highly organized and love working in a fast-paced environment? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading Plaintiff Law Firm is looking for an executive legal assistant to support a national leader on a 12-month fixed-term contract based in Melbourne. This will include coordinating and supporting the leader with high-level administrative assistance, coordinating documents with strong attention to detail, building and managing relationships with both key internal and external stakeholders, and providing excellent client service. To apply for this role, go to morrisblackburn.com.au slash careers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left uh, politics and organising podcast. I forgot what type of podcast it was. Uh, out every Friday, and we dive into the campaign issues of the day from the people leading them from home and abroad. Today, we continue with our federal election post-election uh, recap review, uh, where we're doing it state by state. And today, we're going to look at my home state, the great state of Victoria, the Massachusetts of Australian politics. And to help me unpack it is uh, Ryan Batchelor from the McCall Institute. Ryan will come on the show today and we'll have a bit of a yarn about the results in Victoria and what it all means going forward. Also with the state election coming up in November, um, everyone and their dog is doing hot takes on the implications we'll have for the Andrews Labor government. So we'll have a bit of a chat with Ryan about what he thinks this means for Labor's chances at the November state poll. Um, so check out today's episode and also um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher and if you like the show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And for all the latest updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and uh, as part of our multi-podcast series of breakdowns of all the state's um, uh, election outcomes, we're now going to look at Victoria and to join me in breaking down the state of of Victoria uh, is the Victorian Executive Director for the McCall Institute, Ryan Batchelor. Uh, Welcome to Socially Democratic. Great to be with you, Stephen. Um, our home state. Uh, we had a, it was a great night on election night. Obviously, you joined us from uh, on our live telecast initially from CHQ, but then you, the night, last time we saw you, you, you were actually at the um, Albanese party. How was, I was the, at how the, was uh, the Canterbury Helston Park RSL? It was a pretty happy group of people down there um, who were very excited. I think I spoke to you before um, Anthony spoke. The room was pretty electric, and I think you know there are a lot of um, a lot of loyal Labor people who spent a long time campaigning for Anthony in particular, but for for Labor, and they were pretty pretty excited to see him walk onto stage um, to claim the prime ministership. That uh, by that point, Labor had clearly you know, clearly clearly won. We'd won the election, uh, and there was a lot of celebration that night. It looked fantastic. The pictures were great. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I guess for us, those evenings uh, can be all too few for the National Party. Um, And I sort of think back to 2007 was the last time I kind of sort of felt a sense of uh, jubilation and celebration. Uh, Because 2010 was kind of a weird night, really. It was, yeah. So it was great great for the party faithful to experience that again. Yeah, it was good. There were some people um, in particular, uh, some people we worked with on the campaign, slightly younger than you and I, and living in New South Wales who'd never in fact voted for a Labor government um, because of the what had happened since, um, uh, you know, from 2010 really after the 2010 election, string of losses in New South Wales, string of losses nationally. Um, there's a lot of very happy people who've finally managed to vote for a Labor government um, and it was good to see them celebrating. I can't help but think about politics from a sporting lens as well. Like everyone needs a championship every now and then, you know, <laughs> like... You do, uh, you 
because uh, it just fuels the soul. Um, and uh, we've come a bit, bit blessed here in Victoria, certainly with our state labor governments, but nationally it's been a while between drinks, so it was great to... Um, well, I think it shows that it's worth it, that all the hard, the, 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 the hard times, um, you know, going through the devastating losses, um, you can rebuild. And the hard work that happens between elections is very important to that savouring of the victory on election night. Um, you know, it's the committee meetings you go to, it's the door knocking you do, it's it's all of the other, all of the hard work that goes in between um, uh, polling days that leads to results like we had uh, on the 21st. Um, and so, you know, when people get despondent after the disappointments of 2013 or the, you know, agonising defeat in 2016 and then the devastating loss in 2019, um, turns out that three years later you can you can bring it all back if people remain focused and disciplined. Um, we had the party had a clear strategy, the leadership had a clear strategy about how they wanted to win this election. They stuck to it. We didn't descend into the kind of shenanigans that have bedeviled Labor, particularly federal Labor, in the past, and we got there. And that's a great opportunity now to implement a a good policy platform that's going to make lives better for a lot of Australians. And that's the important thing, isn't it? It's actually uh, that's where my sporting analogy dies because uh, <laughs> your favourite players then go and get drunk on Mad Monday and celebrate. Well, we all go back to work, but uh, in, when you win governments, actually, you then have the responsibility of impacting people's lives for the better. And um, that's certainly- and, and it was a pretty impressive start to this government. I've got to say, like anyone thinking that the election was only you know a little over two weeks away ago, um, just how how fast the prime minister, uh, Prime Minister Albanese. Um, got himself sworn in, went off, met international leaders, dealing with, you know, Jim Chalmers, Caddy Gallagher, dealing with critical economic challenges right here. You've got um, Penny Wong sort of in two weeks making up for a lot of lost ground um, in the Pacific. It it shows you what what good, capable ministers can achieve in, in not very long. Maybe we'll talk a bit about that towards the end, but let's talk about, let's jump into the state of Victoria and how things tr- uh, transpired on election night and uh, just to give uh, the the folks at home a bit of an overview before we start to dive into some of the analysis the statewide two-party preferred for victoria uh, saw a 1.2 percent swing to the labor party and so labor is now on a 54.3 percent to pp whereas the tories are on 45.7 uh, and then we take a look across the primary results and the seats won and the seats changed uh, starting with the coalition, they had a terrible night. Uh, they had a swing of 5.3% against them on their primary. They uh, lost four seats. That takes them now down to 11 seats in the state of Victoria. And I think there's 30-odd seats across the state. Labor had a 4% swing against them on their primary. Our primary is at 32.8%. Uh, we picked up two seats in that process and are now at 24 seats in Victoria, which I think is a high watermark. I can't recall if we've ever had as many um, MPs been sent. I don't think we have, no. No, that's amazing. The Greens had a 1.7% swing to them. They picked up, they've got, they held their only seat, which is the seat of Melbourne, uh, and their vote share was 13%. Uh, United Palmer had a 1.1% swing. That took them to 4.7. One Nation had a 2.8% swing. That brought them up to 38 and the others, which obviously includes uh, these teal seats, had a 3.7% swing to them on primary. Uh, they picked up two seats. Uh, that brings the others to three, obviously, the seat of Indi is an independent, and the t- total vote share of primaries was 11.8, almost 12%. Just unpacking those broader numbers, Ryan, what's your bigger sort of uh, takeaways from that shit night for the Liberal Party and a great night for Labor, even though had a swing against us on our, margin, on our primary? Yeah, I mean, I think it showcases just how important Victoria is to the Labor Party federally. I mean, um, we are bringing in seat percentage to the percentage of seats that uh, Labor holds in Victoria now is at 62% of the of the seats, the 39 seats, as you say, we've got 24 of them. Um, but worryingly, and that's the, the highest percentage of any, um, any state, obviously we exclude the territories where it's... Um, wall-to-wall Labor in the ACT and the NT at a, at the, at a lower house level. Um, so Victoria is really important and a very important part of the of, of the national um, scene for uh, for Labor on the house the floor of the House of Representatives. I think importantly, though, it's pretty dire for the Liberal Party. So it's not just that we've got 
24 out of 39. But as you say, the Liberals and Nationals combined have only got 11 out of 39, less than a third of the seats in Victoria, the federal seats in Victoria, are now held by the Conservatives. And that poses a lot of problems when they try and form government again if they're only holding less than a third of the seats in the second largest state in the nation. So I think very good result for Labor. Obviously, the two-party preferred numbers are pretty spectacular too, like north of 54% is a is a very good result um, to PP. It's really only bettered by our um, friends in the West who had a even more spectacular night, and I know you'll get into that um, in a separate podcast. I mean, it's interesting. I know we like a bit of uh, Victorians. Us Victorians like a bit of rivalry with New South Wales. The two-party preferred result for Labor in New South Wales, they had a good result too. It was only around 51.5%. So, you know... Um, uh, just to demonstrate just how much how important Victoria is um, for for Labor government, there is obviously you know a concern that we saw reduction a swing against Labor um, on our primary vote, and I think that's something that the party needs to unpack um, over time, drill into. I'm sure we can have a bit more of a conversation about that now. It did fall by four percent, which um, after Tassie was the biggest primary vote swing away from Labor in the country. So there's clearly something going on where uh, people in Victoria um, moved away from Labor on the primary but came back to Labor on the 2PP um, and in a preferential voting system, in the end, that's what matters the most because it clearly that result is translating into seats um, and the highest uh, seat share of anywhere in the nation. So um, I think fundamentally great results and also some really, I think, pleasing results for the campaigns that were run here in Victoria. I know we spoke on the night about the importance of the campaign, the really positive campaigns that we saw in places like, um, in our target seats, places like Chisholm and in Higgins, the seats that we needed to win to form government, resources, strategy, effort went into those. Chisholm had um, the... uh, topped the list around the nation in terms of uh, direct voter contact out of all of the, the seats around the country, according to the stats that the National uh, Secretariat, Labor's National Secretariat put together. And that saw a big, big primary vote swing of 4% towards towards Labor. Karina Garland did a great job there and a two-party preferred swing of nearly 7%. I mean, there's a that's a fantastic result um, in Chisholm. Higgins, again, 2.5% swing to Labor on the primary vote, about a 4 you know, just over 4% swing in two-party preferred terms, there, you know, they are really solid results for in terms of winning seats off the Liberal Party. And I think the other side to that is the seats that we held, and there's a lot of speculation going in to the campaign, particularly about um, Karangamite. You know, the Prime Minister visited. I don't know how many times the Prime Minister visited Karangamite, but he was there an awful lot. In the end, we had a swing to us on the primary in in Karangamite. Libby Coker did a fantastic job campaigning, and a two-party preferred swing to Labor in Karangamite of nearly 6.5%. So the, the 2PP swing in Karangamite and Chisholm were pretty much the same, and I think that just shows you how good um, the Labor campaigns were in two very different parts of, um, of Victoria. And also we should mention that Dunkley as well, um, again, had a good result. Um, Peter Murphy swing to her on the primary vote, and again, another solid 2PP swing of nearly of between 3 and 4%. So I think, you know, really good signs for good local members in uh, Libby and Peter, winning, holding, and increasing their margins. So it's a really positive for the future. It's one of the things I've taken from it because, as you said, we're going to talk a bit more about some of the, uh, I guess, what we call deltas from the Victorian result in a moment. And I'm searching to get a sense of why we saw swings. I'm just talking purely on primary votes here, why we saw swings against Labor um, in our held seats, both in the inner in a suburban parts of Melbourne and in the outer ring, but then there's a there's a group of seats that we saw a swing to us on primary that were both either seats that we were going after in terms of wanting to gain from the Tories or seats that we currently held, and you've just mentioned them there, uh, the two seats we needed to go after Higgins and uh, and and Chisholm, and the two seats we needed to hold which we'd picked up in 2019, which was Karangamite and Dunkley. And a diversity of 
demographics there as well. You know, suburban, outer suburban Geelong, and then sort of into the regions in Corangamite, Dunkley, right down the bottom of the uh, Mornington Peninsula, Frankston, then into sort of pretty wealthy areas of the state as well. And then obviously those, um, that, you know, Higgins, the, the, one of the jewels in the crown of the Liberal Party for a long, long time. Um, but then, uh, then Chisholm, which is kind of middle, I'd call that middle class, eastern suburbs, Melbourne, um, but also ethnically diverse as well. The, the thing that I took from it, the first thing I took from it is we ran a, these were marginal seat campaigns. It had, um, it had good candidates that worked. It had a field program. It had direct voter contact. There was mobilization and organization of volunteer capacity to go and have hard conversations on the doors with targeted either voters for persuade, uh, whether they've been undecided or persuadable. Um, and that's one of the strengths I think that we should take from this as a key learning is let's not forget the importance of um, the work of a field program and community organizing and direct voter contact, actually talking to voters. Um, and I want to sort of think about, we'll come back to this point later when we talk about the swings against us in some of these seats, but just to highlight that point that you just made that we had swings to us on our primary because we spoke to voters on their doorsteps or on the telephone. Absolutely. I think it it is very clear that that made a huge difference in those campaigns. And, you know, uh, the result, I mean, I think the result in Chisholm is particularly evidence of just how important that hard work was. The primary vote swing there of, you know, a good percentage point higher than really any of the other seats in the eastern suburbs because it was just a massive effort. Now, those kind of efforts are very difficult to replicate across every electorate. And so the smart decision was made to put resources into the places that we needed to win us government. Um, and that clearly, um, you know, is the right approach when you're trying to form a government, not just trying to lift your vote. Um, and, and they're always very important considerations too. Um, another plus from uh, the Victorian result was the swings that we saw to Labor then in other eastern suburban uh, electorates that are held by the Tories. Um, Deakin, which is a seat that Labor has held in the past, um, but uh, Deakin, Aston, uh, Menzies, uh, significant swings to the point that they were on, uh, you know, they were too close to call on election night and it took days for that count to sort of eventually sort of finalise. What do you draw from the, the results out there in the eastern suburbs? Well, I think what you saw out in the eastern suburbs was really, um, I mean, you just saw how toxic... Scott Morrison was. I mean, the negatives that Scott Morrison had and the Liberal Party had um, in those electorates were that um, people just in middle suburban Melbourne did not like Scott Morrison and did not want to vote for him. Um, you had a Labor campaign at a candidate level and a national level that had a really smart strategy of saying we can focus on things that matter to you in your lives. Um, we have a program that is substantial but doesn't feel like it's going to overwhelm or have too much risk associated with it. It was a very uh, smart politically policy strategy for the campaign and for the electoral offer, and that was spread out over not just the, the, the five or six weeks of this campaign, but it was a policy strategy that was actually built over the last couple of years, things like the aged care focus, things like childcare, um, having a finding the right finding the, the space that climate became a positive for us and not a negative. Um, uh, you know, I was involved um, in the in the lead up to the national conference in developing Labor's national platform. You know, there were a lot of people who, learning the lessons from twenty nineteen, um, were, you know. Everyone would have liked the Labor platform to be bolder. But I think what the results in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne demonstrate is that um, a smart strategy can get people to come and vote for Labor and ultimately that's what we need to be doing. And just to also just to sort of drive that home, obviously the broader swings to uh, Labor in those seats that I just mentioned, you know, two PP were substantial. Um, I think uh, I'm just trying to look at this one here. What have we got? We've got Deakin was uh, a two-party preferred swing of 4.5%, but on the primary it was like 0.4. Um, also wanted to illustrate that, you know, where a ground game can make a difference. And I know that Matt Gregg, the Labor candidate out in Deakin, you know, was doing some uh, direct voter contact, but 
limited by the resources that were available to him to mobilize you know volunteers and i'm sure that a lot of those volunteers probably would have been piling into other neighboring seats that were more targeted but it just shows you that a field program can actually make a difference on that primary vote and we can just see that it was a swing to labor you know at a 2pp level but on the primary it was actually quite small i think a couple of the other things that are worth mentioning i mean eastern suburbs of melbourne and i said this on election night let's watch what happens on the belgrave Lidale line and that was clearly um for the melbourne transport aficionados was an important um piece of uh intelligence um but i think the other thing to look at if you just look around the state you know we got a three percent swing to us in bendigo and ballarat i mean great local members in um uh, catherine king and lisa chesters have taken the labor vote now in in those two electorates on a two-party preferred basis into the mid-60s and that's you know they're significant results they are now some of the bedrock of labor's majority um, and similarly, you know, even in, down in Geelong, Richard Miles got a swing to him um, on a two PP basis. So these kind of important regional centres where they've got their own, you know, got their own media markets, where they've got good, um, good, good locals doing good campaigning, show that show that you know they can really make a difference to our electoral results as well. And I don't think in in focusing on the seats in Melbourne where we did well, um, I don't think we should um, should neglect the kind of good work that, that has happened in some of the held seats, particularly those in regional Victoria, um, where we've picked up, you know, picked up votes as well. And not to take for granted, it's a really good point, Ryan, because we shouldn't take that, those seats for granted because in 1990, sort of at the end of the Kern-Kana um, state government, we lost all of those regional seats uh, to the Liberals. Um, That's right. And it took us a while to win them back. And over time, yeah, they've to That's your right. point. I mean, um, there was a Liberal member for Ballarat before Catherine. And yep. the Liberal Party is a very long way away from winning Ballarat because of the work that Catherine King's done over 20 years. Yeah. Um, deltas from uh, from the election night. And I, I'm just trying to wonder how we can break this down because upon studying the, the primary votes in Labor held seats, I noticed that there was a swing – Consistently, there was a swing, and it varied from size. So in some cases, it was as big as sort of eight, nine percent on primary to four, three percent. Um, but in the inner city seats, there was a swing against Labor on its primary, and primarily a swing to the Greens or to left-leaning uh, candidates. Uh, and then in the outer, so I'm talking, I'm talking Cooper, Wills, McNamara, um, um, Fraser, Maribyrnong. Uh, and then, if you move into the outer fringes of Melbourne, both in the north, the west, and in the southeast, we saw swings against Labor on our primary. But two parties like Lib Dems, One Nation, um, and uh, and Palmer. How do you want to unpack that? What do you? What, what yeah. do you I I think I'll start at the macro level. So, three out of every four polling booths in Victoria saw the major party vote go backwards. So whether they were Liberal votes going, Liberal national votes going backwards or Labor votes going backwards, um, of the vote, that's slightly, numbers are slightly um, different because of the three kind of contest on the Conservative side, but basically of around 900 to 2,000 polling places in the country, our vote went backwards in a, just under 1,500 of them and the Liberals went backwards in about 1,600 of them, I think. Um, and that's about three out of every four. So across the board, there was a drop in the primary vote of the major parties. Um, so we um, we need to think about that in terms of what it means for um, for major party politics, um, because that's clearly a shift that's on. There was an interesting stat that I saw that um, Ben Rowley from the Tally Room put on uh, Twitter the other day that the number of electorates decided on primary votes across the country in 2007 was 75. So half the electorates in the country in 2007 got decided on the primary vote. This election was 15. So ten percent, which is a massive shift in terms of the role that votes for the major parties are playing in determining, you know, at a very basic level, fifty percent plus one, who's won an electoral contest. Um, so I think that's the the first major learning is that clearly there's an issue with primary votes for the major parties in Victoria. We saw it on the Liberal side, we saw it on the Labor side, and as you say on the Labor side, I think we saw it in two distinct ways, although they might be related. One was that in certain parts of the city in particular, but again in some parts of the country, uh, the rise in the primary vote of the Greens. So you saw, you know, big big increases in the Green vote in 
the Coopers and McNamaras, but also in Corangamite. There was, I think, a 5 or 6% increase in the green vote in Corangamite. Um, uh, part of the... But it was interesting that the green vote was static in in Higgins. I didn't move in Higgins, and it clearly that the, the change vote in Higgins came to Labor. Um, it was pretty static in Maribyrnong. And, and as you say, in other parts of the... Um, other parts of the of the metro area, um, places like Corwell, Gorton, Scullin, Lawler, Fraser, um, Bruce, uh, Holt had a primary vote reduction of between kind of seven and ten percent, with Scullin being the outlier on fourteen. I think because of the the Liberal candidate last time was disendorsed, so there's a slight probably a couple of percentage points in that there. But so between a seven and ten percent drop in the primary vote in those seats that you could. Um, you know, draw a ring around Melbourne. Um, so there's something, there's clearly something going on there. And those votes went to, as you say, a sort of real, they sprayed in a lot of ways to a mix of Palmer, also United Australia Party, I should say, Hanson, a bit of LDP, a bit of local independent. So really all over the place. Um, largely they came back um, to Labor. So the two PP swings were less than the, um, than the primary vote primary vote losses, but it is something that we've got to we've got to look at. And I, I think part of it in both the Greens in the inner city in places like, you know, McNamara and Cooper and in the outer suburbs to the Palmer, it's it's a protest vote that um, people were clearly disillusioned for a number of reasons with um, both of the major parties and on different aspects of a policy offering, you saw... Um, uh, simpler, different, and probably more expansive appeals, whether it was 3% fixed interest rates that Clive Palmer was um, putting in ads on every television station and every newspaper, or whether it was, you know, promises about ending mining and total public funding of dental care that the Greens were putting on the doorsteps of, um, of, of, of Cooper and, and, and McNamara. So, you know, I think they're, they're partly elements of of a similar um, of a similar uh, issue. Um, so I think that there's that, but there are differences in various places. And I think, I mean, we do need. I think Labor does need to take a look at when the when all the data comes out, both the national office and the Victorian branch need to sit down and do a thorough look at our um, what happened to the primary vote, particularly in the north and the west and the southeast. Because they're not, you know, if these are trends, um, they're worrying trends. Um, so we've got to figure out whether they're trends or whether it's something about 2022. Because I don't think you can explain what's happened in Victoria in 20 in the 2022 election without really thinking about what's happened in Victoria in 2020 and 2021. Like this pandemic has done a lot of damage to the state. Um, people have been affected in a lot of ways. And although the campaign wasn't about COVID and wasn't about the pandemic, you can't be human and not be affected by what's happened in the last couple of years and your experience in the last couple of years. So we've got to we've got to understand that um, as well and un- unpack that because particularly in in the northern suburbs and in, we- in the western suburbs, the degree of economic insecurity that we saw and the impact that it had on people's lives during the pandemic, you know, rates of casualisation. Um, multiple job holdings, people who um, had to go and keep working in essential service industries, whether it was in retail or transport and warehousing or working in, um, you know, hospitals right from orderlies and nurses and beyond. Um, Those people have had a really rough couple of years because nothing's ever stopped for them, yet there's been a whole lot of other problems that have... um, in terms of access to services, access to healthcare, you know, the worries all about all those vaccines, like all of these things pile up on people. And then we get to a campaign and inflation's running high at 5%. Interest rates are going up. Wages haven't been going up. So people who are um, feeling the pressures of economic insecurity because of um, uh, job insecurity, casualisation, um, unable to access, uh, potentially unable to access the housing market because of rising housing costs. Um, Everything they buy is becoming more and more expensive, petrol, power, food, Um, and they haven't had a pay rise in 
many in many years. Like all of these things are what's been going on in the lives of people living right across the suburbs of Melbourne, and we can't explain this result without understanding those issues and figuring out what we've got to do about them as a government in particular. Because I think what also we saw in the campaign was that with that kind of a um, issues melting pot, if you if you if you if you like, um, you saw the bombardment of uh, the airwaves and the pages of the newspaper, um, online advertising with relentless advertising about from particularly from the UAP, Clive Palmer, who spent millions and millions of dollars telling people that the major parties were basically the same. You look at his ads, it was a picture of Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison shaking hands in the parliament. Um, He was saying basically a pox on both your houses and I'm going to keep interest rates at 3% or I'm going to make it easier for you to get into the housing market or I'm going to bring super home. So there's a, um, I think there's a uh, very clear case that the, the, the vulnerabilities on economic insecurity met an advertising campaign uh, focused on those issues that told people that the major parties weren't on their side and that's a significant part of what we've seen in these election results. And if I can sort of bring my uh, campaign hat into it, for all of the money that the UAP spent in advertising that message, only 4 or 5% of the electorate in those communities went, oh, that's a good idea. You know, I'm about that. Um, as a return on investment, you know, if you and I were the branch secretaries and did that, people would, you know, would would be out of a job. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a, I mean, it was a huge, it's a huge amount of money that for the second election in a row has been spent on those kind of messages, and it's clearly it's had an effect. But as you say, it's probably in the four to five for the UAP, a couple of other percent around the place. I mean, it. Um, and unlike what we saw with the Teals, um, they were very geographically focused on certain parts of, in certain electorates. I mean, basically in Melbourne it was um, Goldstein and Kuyong that had all of their focus and effort and a community organising model that backed it up, whereas what you saw on the flip side with Palmer was kind of a spraying of a mass message with not much that sat underneath it in terms of a community organising model to convert that discontent into votes for their people. Um, I think that's that's also an interesting part to get back to your point about what what role does campaigning and local campaigns have in, in converting discontent to votes. You saw a well-organised community-run machine knock off Josh Frydenberg and Tim Wilson, um, whereas a, an equally, um, uh, you know, an equally... Um, receptive audience in the north and the west just did, wasn't able to mount that kind of same organizing model i've got a, a question for you in that it, it, and i want to talk about safe um the, the, i guess the, the 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 campaign contract that we have with labor mps when they get pre-selected for us what we'd normally call a safe labor seat um, I always make the joke that when you do get pre-selected for that seat, you've won Tassilo because you've basically got a job for life. And the the contract sort of, the unspoken contract is you've got um, this great piece of real estate and it's yours for as long as you work it. In return, um, we would like to think that you're capable enough to be on the front bench of a future Labor government. Um, if not, at least be a great local member. You are not going to get centralised funding to support your campaign because we have to allocate. We don't resources are finite. And we have to allocate it to the marginal seats, but we still expect you with with the plethora of resources that you've got, you should be able to maintain your margins there. I'm now starting to think off to your point there about this sort of air war that was being bombarded into these particular communities in the north and the west and the southeast, and also like if you look at the seat, the the booth results in Maui. Um, you know, not a the seat of Monash is not a Labor seat by any stretch of imagination. The old McMillan seat was Christian Zara's, um, but the booths in Maui have always been historically strong Labor booths for uh, for us, and they swung same same kind of numbers nine, ten, eleven, twelve percent against Labor to Palmer and to One Nation. So, is I think that we need to sort of sit down with our, our local MPs now and say, look, you're just going to have to work as hard as someone in a target seat 
and I don't say that in a disrespectful way, I'm not, and I'm not implying that they're not working hard, but I know that they're not knocking on doors. I mean, there are ex- some exceptions to rule, and, I don't, and I'm going to call out some names here, and I'm not doing that to the, at the exclusion of others, but I know for a fact, like at a state level, um, you know, Nat Hutchins gets out there and knocks on doors, and she's mobilising a lot of her volunteer base uh, to do that. Sarah Conley is working her electorate as well. And I'm, like I said, I'm not saying there's a whole bunch of others that are not. But the expectation now, I think, on those folks that are in reasonably safe labour seats going forward is you're going to have to get in the trenches and you're going to have to find supporters, organise them, and then mobilise them. You're going to have those conversations with folks on the doors. I think things have to change a bit in those seats. What's your thoughts on that? I think we do, and it's got to be the connection of the party to the community over the like, over the course of a term. It's, it's not an issue that that emerges for six weeks every three or four years. Um, so this is about members and their teams, uh, campaign teams, office teams, connecting with their local community groups, um, doing all that work that, um, that that builds trust in areas. And we've seen, I mean, one of the things I was going to have a look at was like, you know, I thought, is this a new phenomenon? Probably no. Well, let's go back and have a look at what some of this has happened in the past. So, you know, a few by-election results just to sort of give you a flavour of of Labor's, an assault on Labor's primary vote in, in past, at a state election, in state elections. So uh, working backwards, Altona in 2010 when Jill Hennessy came in, she suffered a 13% swing away from her on the primary vote at that by-election, was built back up again. Uh, in Colroy in 2008, a 13% primary vote swing against Labor. So the primary vote went from, you know, around just under 50%, 48.5% in the by-election to back to the mid-60s by the mid-2000s. So, you know, time building, local members building it up. And um, if you look at the north uh, moment, that was probably close to the hearts of people close to me, that the Thomastown by-election in 1990 was a 24% primary vote swing away from Labor. Um, and, again, that was built back up over time. So we have seen some of these types of... Um, uh, vote swings in these areas away from Labor in the past. I think we can't expect that they'll be isolated now and into the future, and it does require us to think about what the operating model for ongoing community engagement is and, I think, what's the policy? What's what's the government offer? What's what's government... The, if, the, if the purpose of voting Labor is to change the government so that government changes your life for the better, how is that going to happen for these communities? What is the improvements to the social infrastructure that we're going to see across the north and the west and the southeast? Um, what is the job secu- the improvements in job security that we're going to deliver in policy terms? You know, how are we going to make sure that government's delivering? Because we've seen that when they do, these communities clearly come back and vote Labor again strongly. To that point as well, uh, to the first point about the sort of, uh, I almost see it like a boom bust kind of primary vote cycle over the course of elections. Like I don't want to go so far back, like, you know, 18 diggity four or whatever, but, you know, 1998, um, the GST election, you, you look at a lot of those booths in the in the outer ring of Melbourne, um, huge swings on to Labor's primary, but then the Tampa Bay election uh, three years later, uh, in 2001, uh, our, you know, swings against us on our primary. Uh, 07, the, you know, Kevin 07 campaign, once again, big swings back to Labor on our primary, like huge, like, you know, substantial movement, right? Uh, and then um, 2013, swings against us again. Uh, and then, you know, nine, 16 kind of corrects it again, comes back out again, and now we've seen another swing against us. Now, there, so there is a trend there to one of your earlier points about seeing trends. There is a trend where we're seeing this sort of um, this uh, boom and bust cycle on our primary and our heartland. Um, we don't want to then then have another election in three years' time and see it swing again against us. Then we're going, oh, okay, that's okay. Well, now we're starting to see a pattern. It's not great. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I actually want to offer some word of caution about what we are seeing and, and let's not start jumping off the Westgate Bridge just quite yet. Well, just on that point, I mean, also remember that Bernie Finn was a member for Tullamarine for two terms. Yeah. In the lower house, out in the north and the west. Um, so, you know. Uh, Genghis Khan himself. That's right. Insane. And then to the point about policy, 
when there is a change election, you do tend to see, like if the, the, the electorate's kind of made up their mind and they're going to kick out the old team and I want a new team come in, like 07, like 13, I, I thought that this was a change election and it was, we changed government, but it was, it was interesting to see in the lead up to election day with the research showing that the Labor primary was staying low and we weren't seeing this sort of late break of those being polled who were indicating that there were other, and they stuck with that in their primary vote. Um, and I guess it's to that point before you were saying about, you know, the, the, the insecurities of people out in those outer suburbs, but also in the inner city as well, because a lot of people voted for the Greens. W- what's going on there? What, what, what do you think happened there? What are, the, what are the influencing factors that said, you know what, I'm going to give my second preference or third preference to Labor over the Tories because I'm not voting for them. That guy's got to go but I'm not going to give you – know, there was basically roughly, you know, 20% of the electorate that said, well, I'm not giving my first preference to Labor. Whereas normally in, in 07, you know, 2013 for the Tories, people did do that. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think the um, – I think partly it's got to do with – I mean, if we take the comparison back to 2007, like why did these – why did a whole lot of people vote Labor in 2007 for change? But – a lot of them decided, you know, there's a section of the community that decided not to vote Labor first, but vote Labor second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever it was, just ahead of the Liberals. Um, people do forget that a big part of 2007 was work choices, that um, the importance that um, voting Labor to get rid of something that was, in a policy sense, undermining your job security making it easy to get sacked and lowering your wages. That was, you know, it was a pretty brutal message about um, the impact that work choices had um, on on people who um, uh, you would say fall into those categories of being more vulnerable um, in those types, in, in that type of work, have less negotiating power, all of those sorts of things. When the when the scales were tilted favor, in, more in favour of the bosses, Um. So I think that that's a that, that's part of it, and there was no issue like that in this agenda in this election. That the policy agenda that we were fighting on was not one of um, sharp ideological division in a labor capital sense in the way that it was back in two thousand and seven. Um, so I think that that's definitely had an impact. Um, I think also, I think part of this and, and part of the strategy in this election was clearly from Labor that um, the way to win was there were sort of two choices, I suppose. There was to bank that a whole lot of people didn't want to vote for Scott Morrison, but um, some of them wanted, you know, a highly ambitious change agenda. Um, and we saw that ground really being taken by the Teal candidates and to a degree by the Greens. Um, and that they wanted, you know, a more ambitious policy agenda from Labor. And I think the Labor campaign had to make a decision as to whether they chased those voters or whether they chased the other cohort of voters who were didn't like the Liberal Party, didn't like Scott Morrison, but, you know, weren't 100% convinced that Labor was the place to go, who wanted um, essentially safe change, who wanted... Um, change that wasn't going to totally revolutionise their lives, who wasn't going to bring in, you know, a whole lot of new taxes, um, scare them with a whole lot of um, big agendas that had been rejected by the voters in the past. Um, and so Labor, I think, had to make the strategic decision to, to focus its efforts on those voters who might not have voted for us if we didn't have the kind of election strategy that we did have and the kind of election program that we did have this time compared to people that we know that didn't vote for us in 2019. And I think that we, we saw the, the the effect of that in, in this campaign that, that we said to a lot of people, well, we will be the change that you want to see, we'll be safe, um, we'll deliver the sort of things that are important to you, um, we'll get on and do them, but, you know, we're not going to... Um, um, what you see in Anthony Albanese is not this massive... Um, transformative um, program that runs to, you know, a million pages thick because people clearly got worried by that in um, in, in 2019. Um, we learned those lessons and we had a different approach. Um, I think the consequence of that 
was that there are another section of people who probably wanted us to do more and wanted us to be more ambitious. And I think you probably saw a little bit of that in what happened in McNamara where um, uh, Josh Burns had an, you know, a slight increase in his primary vote. Like Josh, Josh did well um, on his primary. It's just that a whole lot of Liberals, uh, a lot of people were dissatisfied with the Liberal Party and a lot of them went, well, there was a big rise in the Green vote. Um, and that's probably to do with the kind of scale of ambition. And it's probably what played out a little bit in um, in Queensland as well, where you know the scale of ambition that people wanted to see was 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 ahead of where the Labor campaign was, because the Labor campaign had made a strategic decision that it wanted to do what was going to maximise its chance of winning, and um, that's the trade off there. Uh, it, yeah, it really had a sense of. Um... 2019 was like you're playing. It's a if I can use a Celtic parlance here. You're playing at home in a European night, and it's you got five, you're playing with four up front, and you're absolutely just you know going the you know the tonk. Uh, this campaign felt like a, a, an away game in Europe where you're parking the bus and you're just trying to you're gonna you want to get a result, but you're just gonna be cautious and just try and etch it out. And it felt like that. It felt like we thread, threaded the needle. I mean, we did. We got you know we formed government, and ultimately that's what we're here to do. No one's. No one's going to look back in 30 years' time and say, oh, yeah, but they didn't really. It wasn't a sexy campaign or didn't light, light, light it up and we went by, you know, 40 seats or whatever. In the end, people only remember um, who was in government and what they did. Well, people are going to remember, judge the next three years, judge the Labor government on the next three years, not the last six weeks. And um, the next election will be fought on the record of this government as a government and whether they do what they say they do, and that's really important, whether they take a sensible approach to the challenges and uh, um, effectively deal with the multitude of challenges that are ahead of us, and that they find reasons to make people feel happy about having voted Labor or happy to vote Labor again. I mean, I think part of the challenge that we've got in this next election, just to get onto the future for a moment at a federal level, is to convince the people who voted for the government last time to vote for the government next time because... They voted Liberal uh, two weeks ago and we need them to vote Labor next time and they are probably more um, cautious again. But we also need to provide the people who want more ambition, um, who want a government that um, has a vision for the future of Australia that they are really excited about, probably that's also speaking more to to younger voters as well. I mean, there are a lot of new voters that came onto the role, um, how do we make sure that they get excited by Labor's by Labor's agenda and the transformative nature of a Labor government that we know that Labor governments can be and will be? How do we make sure there's enough in the agenda for them as well? And I think, you know, I think we're seeing steps in the right direction. I mean, the the focus that Anthony has put on implementing the Uluru Statement from the Heart and putting a voice to the Parliament for First Nations people into the constitution you know it was the first thing he said on stage on his election night victory speech um, and i think if we can harness those types of moods to build enthusiasm for the way that labor will govern um, i think we can do a lot to convince those people that maybe they would have liked more from us last time but we're actually delivering what they want when we're there in our um, sort of final analysis, key takeaways for us um, from the result in Victoria, starting with the what, what do we, what does the Andrews government draw from this? They've got a really important poll in November this year, um, and looking to make a um, his, another historic win, take them into their third term in office. Um, you know, so I think a lot of people out there probably think it's a given. I, I'm not of that view. I think that every election you need to play it as if you're going to lose. Um, what are some of the key takeaways that you have from the result on uh, the 21st of May that we should consider for the uh, Andrews government election? I mean, I think we've got to obviously draw the distinction between state and federal, but the mood, clearly there was a mood in, in, in Melbourne in particular um, that is a bit angry, frustrated over the last couple of years. So figuring out how we process the pandemic effects on the voting population will be important um, in November. Um, and it's, it's people don't want to talk about it all the time, so I understand that, but, the, the, like, we need to think about those issues. Um, clearly, cost of living pressures are really hurting people. Like, it's 
power prices going up, petrol prices going up, uh, job security. Those are really big issues that need to be front and centre of um, where the uh, Andrews government and what it can what it can do vis-a-vis those those questions. Um, and I think the other thing that probably on the other side is that, I mean, we shouldn't underplay the importance that integrity issues played in the federal campaign. And so they will, um, you know, you can certainly see where uh, the Liberal Party at a state level is trying to draw some parallels. Um, I think they're they're vastly different uh, here. But, you know, those, those sort of, um, we've just got to watch that. But th- those kind of issues, as they bubble along, I think they're in, they're important issues. I think the big the big difference, though, between the Morrison government and the Andrews government is you've got a is a track record of actually doing things. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it it does sound a bit trite to say this is a government that's delivered, but it has you know, like <laughs> it has changed the shape and face of the suburbs of Melbourne in. In, in many ways, it's done a lot in the regions. Um, uh, I think we can't just think that'll be enough, but it's an important ingredient in success is actually demonstrating that this you're electing a government that can actually make a difference to your lives rather than promising you that they will and they're not actually doing anything because people get sick of that. Um, so... Uh, I think that's that's sort of another important part of that um, of that lesson, and then um, figuring out what the next set of challenges that the state's facing are and how we're going to deal with it. I think you know, I think there are going to be. I mean, clearly the state budget was framed around health for a very very good reason. Um, that's clearly an issue out there in the community. It certainly came across clearly in the um, parts of the federal campaign. The concerns that people had about um, access to healthcare and figuring out how the state government deals with that work to the new federal government to deliver on that, I think are, uh, are important as well. The, um, what, one of the things I found interesting from, from a lot of the analysis, and I'm, I'm completely ignoring some of the craziest stuff that was like the front page of the Herald Sun a couple of days ago, but more so if you're, I mean, to your point about the, the things that the, the Andrews government have to be cognizant of going into, uh, into this poll in November, um, it's, and I guess it's not just, I think one of the strengths of the 2018 campaign was we could point to things that, and this came up in a lot of our research, we can point to the things that Labor had done that we said we would do in 2014. And then that gave us permission to say, and these are the things that we're promising in the next term. And people go, oh, that makes sense. And I think that, that recipe could be replicated again. So they need to come up with, you know, where do we, where does the government continue to go to invest in communities? to make their lives a lot better and, you know, deal with all the things that you just mentioned, cost of living and whatnot, health, and et cetera. The thing I find difficult for what the Liberals do is that their party's been gutted in Victoria. Um, if you look at the results in the western, in the eastern suburbs, um, there's a whole bunch of state Liberal MPs that should be shitting themselves about whether or not they're going to get re-elected. There is... There isn't any evidence actually of the Liberal Party picking up seats in the Western suburbs. There's evidence that will be swings against the Labor Party on their primary and maybe you might find one or two examples of an independent or something maybe jagging a seat as a sort of a collective non-Labor ticket. Um, but there is specific evidence of swings to the Labor Party against the Liberal vote in the Eastern suburbs. Um, now, you're trying to draw a pathway back to um, 40, 45 seats in the Victorian lower house um, you know, you need to take some seats off of us in, in the regions and we've already talked about how Labor's doing quite well there. You need to take some seats off us down the sand belt and those, at this stage anyway, these seats look reasonably comfortable. Meanwhile, you've got to defend your heartland in the eastern suburbs, which has been under threat from either Labor or this sort of insurgency within your own sort of centre-right grouping of the Teals. I mean, what's the what's the lessons for the Tories here? I mean, can we... Uh, well, they're in a lot. I mean, you're right. They're in a lot of strife. I mean, they're fighting on fronts that they don't want to be fighting on when they should be, and they're playing a. a def, then they're going to need to play a defensive game in those electorates where they um, now when there is now a ready-made set of community organisers who want a certain type of um, liberal party that, frankly, they haven't seen in a very long time. Um, the kind of um, 
liberals that supported Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniel aren't the kind of liberals that really um, are appealed to by the way that the state Liberal Party has gone about doing its politics in recent years. And uh, they're not going to be convinced, I think, by, um, uh, by more of the same. So there is really, I think, going to be a defensive posture for the Liberals um, in terms of their seat strategy uh, in November and their policy agenda. They, I think they're going to be betwixt and between about what they do because they're not going to know what the right approach is. Um, that's going to definitely cause them a whole lot of troubles. Um, I mean, uh, where do they think the big issues that they need to be fighting on are? I'm not sure that they've, they know that now. Um, and more importantly, how are they going to convince the electorate that they're better placed than the current government to deliver on them? Like, does anyone really think that they're going to be best placed to get the hospitals back on track again? I mean, I think there's, there's, you know, on the on the performance of the last few years, does anyone really think that they're going to actually be better at fixing the uh, local infrastructure and congestion issues that um, exist uh, across suburbs? So, uh, I do fear that they'll um, they might pick some issues where um, they don't necessarily have the greatest answer about what they do and have a credibility gap about whether they can deliver. All that being said, I think it's going to be, I agree with your sentiment, um, I think it's going to be a tight election, it's going to be a close election. I'm here because of that phenomenon that we saw writ large across Victoria, which is a decline in the major party primary vote. And I think we'll see that again. I think the other challenge, that the other big difference I think that we've, people have got to think through is that you can't see a Palmer propaganda machine roll out at a Victorian state election in the same way they did at a federal election, nor a Climate 200 um, intervention in the same way because of the changes that have been made to political donation laws uh, in Victoria, which you know, fundamentally if you want to talk about you know what matters to bring integrity into politics, um, more public funding and... Um, uh, less reliance on mega donations from billionaires mm. probably would be top of everyone's list. Um, and the Victorian election would be one where um, there are limits on donations, um, there's rules about spending, um, which mean that we won't see a repeat of the kinds of cash that flowed into either Clive Palmer or, frankly, the Teal campaigns um, in the federal election in Victoria, which means that... Um, you know, we are Labor is vulnerable. Liberals are vulnerable to um, well organised, well organised community independence, uh, wherever they may be, whether it's in the western suburbs or the eastern suburbs or the southeastern suburbs. Um, but they take um, they take a lot of effort to get off the ground, um, uh, and with effort and enthusiasm, they could definitely be there and, and, and be a threat. And we should absolutely think that they are. But money won't play the same role in our election that it did in May. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. Um, we, uh, you know, as we sort of come off the glow of this amazing victory on the 21st of uh, May, we start to now turn our attention certainly here in Victoria to um, the last Saturday in November, which is such a critical uh, election for us all and we want to make sure that we can re-elect the Andrews government. So I'm sure Ryan will have you back on the show at some stage to talk more about that. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today and thank you for uh, joining us on election night for our live telecast and also thank you to Mikhail for being one of our co-sponsors as well to get that um, live telecast off the ground in the space of three days. I'm not still sure how we did it but we did it nonetheless. I don't know how it fit. Um, we landed it, but we people watched it, so that's a good start. Well, I think it was, you know, like I think one of the reasons why we wanted to support it was because it's so important to get more voices out there in politics, um, in the public debate, that the kind of, um, you know, lesson from the way that people are consuming news about politics and information about politics in today's world is that they do, you know, they do take more out of podcasts or they do take more out of um, different information sources, and it's important that... Uh, the progressive side of politics has lots of those voices as well as you know, as as the more um as the more reactionary side does, and they've got plenty of them. They sure do. Ryan Bachelor, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Thanks, Stephen, and look forward to talking to you soon. 
Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.